Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here he's going to be in Genesis chapter 14, looking at the theme of conquest as Abram rescues Lot. We do want to keep you aware of our new podcast, The Civitas Podcast. This new show is co-hosted by Peter Lighthart and James Wood as they converse together and with others about post-liberalism and political theology from a theopolitan ecclesiocentric viewpoint. The first two episodes of that show are now available on all platforms, and we also have links in the show notes for you. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis 14 in the life of Abraham. Genesis 14. Let's read this chapter together and remind ourselves of the events. Abram has moved into the land. Remember, we had an exodus out of Mesopotamia. He moved into the land, established altars, established the church, established worship in the land, and began to lead the other peoples there in worship. He brought with him all the converts we saw that he had made in Haran, And he began to make many converts in Canaan and lead the people in worship of God. And then there was a famine, and the Lord drove him down into Egypt. And then we had a second exodus. Pharaoh attacked Abram. Abram came out with much spoils. And when he got back into the land, he reestablished the altars where he had established them before and called on the name of the Lord and once again began to lead the people in worship and claim the land for God by setting up worship in the land. The Father seeks worshipers to worship him, and Abram was to lead men in that as a priest to the nations. The nations were to follow him. Then we saw that there was strife between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's, and we saw that Lot made an unwise choice. He began to make a series of small, little decisions that incrementally would cause him to lose everything that he had. At this point in history, Abram is rich and Lot is rich. From this point on, Abram gets richer and richer and becomes more and more glorious, and Lot loses one thing after another. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the area of Sodom and Gomorrah was like the Garden of Eden, and he chose that for himself, and then we're told that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked, and we're told that Lot moved east. And that's always a bad sign in the Bible, moving eastward away from the area where worship is conducted. And so there are these slight hints in the text that Lot, while it wasn't morally wrong in the sense of breaking a specific law of God to move and live in that environment, it was an unwise choice, and it's one that very shortly is almost going to cost him everything. After Lot is separated from Abram because of the strife that his men had provoked, God blessed Abram again, told him to look around the land, and said that he would give the land to him and that they would take dominion over it. And so the theme that dominion follows upon worship is established, and then we get to chapter 14, we see it. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the Gentiles, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Beersheh, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which today is Zoar. 
These came as allies to the valley of Siddim, which today is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, that's two Sabbaths, Sabbath judgment, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him, so we see Chedorlaomer was the captain of this confederation. They defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth of the two horns, and Zuzim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh of the two cities. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, which today is Kadesh and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adam, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which today is Zoar, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the Gentiles, Amraphim, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So Lot's not just pitching his tent towards Sodom and living in the circle of the Jordan. He has actually moved down into the valley of Siddim, farther down into the delta, if we imagine there was a delta then. If you look at the map you got last week, and now he's living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Eberite, Abram the Hebrew. That's very interesting how that's written here, and we'll see. Now he was living by the oaths of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. So when this big rebellion on the part of the Canaanites came about, not all the Canaanites rebelled. Some of them chose to be with Abram. Some of them chose to be men of peace. And that was the choice. Do you ally with Sodom or do you ally with Abram? When Abram heard that his relative, his brother Lot, had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, that is, adopted, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Ash says it's on the left side of Damascus, but... In the Bible, you're always facing east, so the left side is north. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from smiting Chedorlaomer, this is the real climax of the passage, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is today the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor, not creator, but possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn by the Lord, that is, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's what you call him. That I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything this year, as lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Well, this passage divides up, as you can see on your outline, into three sections. The Canaanite Rebellion which follows on the rebellion of Ham against Noah. And now we come down in history and we see the cursed be Canaan. Canaan will be a servant. 
We find that they have been serving Chedor Laomer, and now they rebel and they're put down again. The mentality of rebellion and enslavement, progressive rebellion, progressive enslavement, is seen here in this chapter. Then we find a second section, verses 13 to 16, refuge in Abram. Since Abram is the priest, he is almost like a portable city of refuge. And he goes and gets his kinsman and brings him back as a kinsman redeemer, delivers Lot from bondage and restores him. And then finally, verses 17 to 24, we have a section that I've called true dominion because the things that are noted here are the keys to real dominion in life and pleasing God. Now the chapter has two overall purposes. The first is to show Abraham's very real, though limited, dominion over the land. That Abraham had a very real, albeit limited, dominion over the land. So that the promise that God made, even though in chapter 15 we're going to find that full dominion is 400 years in the future, yet God gave a token of real dominion to Abram at this time. And the second purpose of the passage is prophecy and encouragement for the future. Prophecy and encouragement for the future. Because every single one of the enemies that Chedor Laomer defeats are exactly the same people that Israel is going to run into when they enter the promised land and that they were too scared to fight. And that's why there are all these changes of names in verse 2, Bela, that is Zoar. In verse 3, the Valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea. In verse 7, in Mishpat, that is Kadesh. Why did Moses or Samuel or whoever went through and changed these names, why did they do that except to point out that these are the same geographical locations that are called by another name in the book of Numbers? Because 400 years have gone by and names do change in 400 years so that we know that these geographical sites are the same. Now, if you still have your map from last week, you can see the range of where these battles took place by looking at the map. Down at the bottom here is En Mishpat, Kadesh Barnea. And that's where Chedor Leomer's troops went down at least that far in fighting the Amalekites. Actually, they went down further, El Paran, which is in the wilderness. And then they started going back up to Mesopotamia, where they were from, and Abram pursued them from Hebron, which is where he was, Kiriath Arba. He pursued them all the way up to Dan and all the way up beyond Damascus up here to Hobah. All right? The whole stretch of this land is where these battles are fought. And, of course, this is the land that Israel has to conquer later on. So there's a prophecy here, and we'll look at it as we go. Now let's look first of all at the Canaanite rebellion, and that will get us into it. Who are the personnel here? Well, first of all, there's Chedor Laomer, and he's the captain of the alliance that dominates Palestine at this point. Egypt also had a domination over southern Palestine, but attention is called now to the hegemony that was exercised by this Mesopotamian alliance. And even though Chedor Laomer is not mentioned first in verse 1, he's mentioned in verse 4 as the head of everything, and in verse 5 as well. Well, he's a Shemite. It says, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam. And Elam was one of the sons of Shem, the firstborn of Shem, as a matter of fact. And if we go back to the prophecy of Noah, it says, Blessed be God, 
the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And so this is being fulfilled. The Canaanites are serving the Shemites, although they're trying to rebel and shake it off at this point. Now, the next person that's mentioned is, well, not next, but the next we'll take up is Tidal, king of nations, or Tidal, king of Goyim. Your Bibles say different things. This is the Japhethite. If we look at Genesis chapter 10, the Japhethites are called Gentiles or nations. Verse 5, from these the coastlands of the nations or Gentiles or Goyim were separated from their lands, everyone according to his language. That's said about the Japhethites, and when it says Tidal, king of the Gentiles or the nations, that means he's a Japhethite. And there again, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. That's being literally fulfilled here. Tidal is dwelling in the tents of Chedor Laomer, the Shemite who is in charge of everything. And Tidal, the Japhethite, is allied with him, and they have dominion over the Canaanites. Exactly what Noah said was going to come to pass, has come to pass. And then we have Amraphel and Arioch. Well, if we look back at Genesis chapter 10, we find out, at least concerning Amraphel, king of Shinar, that he was a descendant of Ham, but not a Canaanite. Remember, Ham had four sons, Ethiopia, Egypt, Libya, and Canaan. And only the Canaanites are under this curse to be slaves of slaves. The other Hamites would also dominate. And so we have two non-Canaanite Hamites who are dwelling in the tents of Shem and as a result have dominion over the Canaanites. So everything that Noah prophesies is coming to pass. The Canaanites, the five kings of the circle of the Jordan, Adma, Zeboim, Bela, Sodom and Gomorrah, they had been reduced to servitude under Shem, Japheth, and the other sons of Ham, who were dwelling in the tents of Shem under the leadership of Chedor Laomer, the Elamite, the Shemite. All prophesied by Noah, all come to pass. And then the other group that we have here are the five Canaanite kings. And so naturally, being Canaanites, they are in servitude. They have to pay tribute every year to Chedor, Leomer, Amraphel, Arioch, and Tidal, and they don't like it. And so, after 12 years, they rebelled. The situation is the Shemites are already dominating the Canaanites. And the Canaanites rebel, and the Shemites crush the rebellion. That's what we read. Now, there are five battles that are mentioned here. Conquest. Each one of them is important. The number five is the number of military might and power in the Bible. It's probably significant just by itself. But the five particular things here. Chedor Laomer fights and defeats the following people, and they're the same ones that other Shemites will have to fight later on. First of all, the giants. That's in verse 5. In the 14th year, that is after two Sabbaths, Shadur Laomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in two-horned Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth Karnaim means two-horned Venus. Ashtaroth is the Canaanite Venus, and two-horned Venus means 
You may have seen pictures of ancient gods and goddesses. But if you take a crescent moon and you put it on Venus' head so that you have a crescent moon behind her, then you have the two-horned Venus coming up on either side of her head. Venus crowned with a crescent moon, that's the name of the city where this idolatrous worship was taking place, and the Raphaim were defeated. And then he defeated the Zuzim in Ham, in case we have missed the point that this is all a fulfillment of Noah's prophecy, then we're told that the Zuzim were living in a place called Ham. They were true Hamites, true Canaanites. And finally, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathayim, which means the plain of the two cities. Now, for some reason, this verse really emphasizes this idea of two of everything. And I think we need to just connect that up with what Abram did. Abraham went and set up two different altars in the land because it takes two witnesses to establish dominion. And here we have this idea of double witness and two-witness dominion, and that's being cut down. It's being cut down by the Shemites. Now, we remember about these giants. When Israel got to the promised land, they sent spies in. The spies came back in Numbers 13 and said, they're giants, and we can't dare fight these giants. Well, they were supposed to remember, Genesis 14, the Shemites always fight giants. Shemites have been giant killers for 400 years. But they were afraid of the giants and they refused to conquer the land. In fact, this giant theme keeps on going when you get to David, right? In order for David to establish that he really is the king, the first thing he has to do is fight a giant. Let's just trace this out just a tad. Numbers 13, we'll have to keep coming back to Numbers 13 because that's where Israel encountered all these people and chickened out. General Laomer wasn't afraid of them. Abraham wasn't afraid of them with 318 men, but Israel with 2 million was terrified of them. It says in Numbers 13, verse 28, Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Those were giants. Verse 33, There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, that is, the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and that's certainly the way we look to them. Now let's look over at Deuteronomy 1 and see how Moses draws all this together. Deuteronomy chapter 2, excuse me. If you're jotting things down, take down Deuteronomy 2, 9 to 12, and 19 to 23. Deuteronomy 2, 9 to 12. Then the Lord said to me, that is Moses, Do not harass Moab or provoke them to war. Moab, you remember, are descendants of Lot. They're Shemites. They're descendants of Abraham, or relatives anyway. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I gave Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. And then there's this parenthesis that some of the commentaries wonder why it's here. The Emim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and huge as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. You knew all that, right? Now, what's he saying? Well, he's saying that the Moabites drove out these giants and took their land. What was wrong with you people 40 years ago when you were so scared to fight the giants yourself? Your cousins, the Moabites, fought giants. That's what he's saying. And then he says, The Horites formerly lived in Seir. 
But the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. In other words, Esau, your cousin, he defeated the Horites. Why were you afraid of the Horites? They weren't giants. They were just normal size. Why were you so afraid of them? Then look down at verse 19. We've seen Moab. Now Ammon was the brother of Moab. Verse 19, When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass or provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Lot was the father of Moab and Ammon by his daughters. Then he says, It is also regarded as a land of the Rephaim, for the Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Amorites call them Zamzamim a people as great, numerous, and huge as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their places. Well, your cousins, the Ammonites, were able to defeat giants. What's wrong with you? They defeated the Emim and the Zuzim and the Zamzamim and all these other groups. Why couldn't you? Just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir, Horite territory, when he destroyed the Horites from before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And the Avim, who live in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, who destroyed them and lived in their place. Gee, it seems as if everybody is a giant killer except you people, and you have the Lord on your side. What's wrong with you? All of this goes back to Genesis 14. They all knew Genesis 14. The Jews loved the stories of Abram. They thought Abram was great. They were always telling these stories, and yet they hadn't learned a thing from them. Because the cash value here is that Chedorlaomer defeats all these people, and then Abram defeats Chedorlaomer. Shemites have always been giant killers. Well, so much for giants in verse 5. Let's look at the Horites in verse 6, where we already have. The Horites in Mount Seir were also defeated by Chedorlaomer's confederation as far as El Paran, which means bushy oak. Bushy oak, if you want to know. Well, the Horites in Mount Seir were displaced by the Edomites, who were cousins of Israel. They were descendants of Abram. That's in Genesis 36. And we just read about it twice in Deuteronomy 2 as well. The Edomites could conquer Horites, so Moses will say, why couldn't you? And then we come third to Amalekites. Now that's a familiar name. Make sure I'm sticking with your notes. Amalekites in verse 7, and they were at En Mishpat, which means the well of judgment. That's what the place was called back then. Nowadays it's called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh means holy place. All of these names have religious significance, by the way. The giants lived in Venus with two horns. The Horites lived in bushy oak. Remember, Abraham pitched his tent under oak trees, and these giant oaks were always places of worship and judgment. And now we come to a place called Well of Judgment, another place where civil and religious headquarters, and it's later renamed Holy Place. Well... What's the meaning here? Well, Shemites deal with Amalekites. Amalekites don't have anything on Shemites. 
And Shemites under Chedor Laomer could defeat him. Well, Israel ran into the Amalekites in Exodus 17. Remember when they came out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them. Moses had to hold his hands up all day. You try this. You watch the elders do this in church, and you don't know how fast your arms get so tired. When you pray at home sometime, get the service book out and pray that whole prayer of the church like this and see how tired you get. It's incredible how tiring it is to do this. And so remember, Aaron and her had to keep Moses' hands held up in this two-pillar position, giving the two witnesses to God that he would answer their prayers. Well, they had to fight the Amalekites, and this was an encouragement. This all took place at Kadesh Barnea. Well, let's look back at Numbers 13 and see if Kadesh Barnea comes up. It was actually when they were at Kadesh Barnea that they sent the spies out. And the spies came back. Verse 26 of Numbers 13. They proceeded to come back to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran, El Paran, remember, at Kadesh. And they brought back the discouraging word about the giants and all the other people. It was at Kadesh that Shemites defeated Amalekites it was at Kadesh that Israel chickened out. Too bad. They should have learned from history. They didn't. Refused to enter the land. Well, let's look at the fourth group here, our Amorites. The Amorites lived in sandy palms. Not in Florida, but in the land of Canaan. And Gedi is also the later name of this place. Well, we've already looked at Numbers 13. We found there that the Amorites were one of the people mentioned. Numbers 13, verse 29, mentions the Amorites. The people said they were scared of the Amorites. The Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar, Sandy Palms, later known as En Gedi. They shouldn't have been afraid of them. Shemites have been conquering Amorites for 400 years. But suddenly Israel was afraid. Then finally... Canaanites, And, of course, that's the climax. You've gone through these other people, and now we get to the Canaanites themselves, the guys who started this rebellion, the guys who did all the complaining and griping and brought it all to pass and brought judgment on the whole land, the confederation of the five Sodomite kings of Canaan. And we read about them in verses 8 to 11. The king of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and they arrayed against Chedor, Laomer, four kings against five. Then in verse 10... The valley of Siddim, this Garden of Eden-like area, was full of tar pits. That's interesting. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them, it says, but actually it means it hid in them. Literally, they hid in the tar pits. But those who survived fled to the hill country, and Chedorlaomer and his gang took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it implies Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, and their food supply, and departed, and they also took a lot. There are some things to note here. The text calls attention to the fact that the valley of Siddim was the salt sea. That's in verse 3. And so the readers of this passage in Moses' day were supposed to remember that God overthrows the wicked. They're going to go up against Canaanites. But don't you remember, Moses wants to say to the people, don't you remember 400 years ago, 375 years ago, the wicked Canaanites were completely overthrown by God in a miraculous event. Fire rained down from heaven. They just went literally into hell. The smoke rose up like a furnace. They became a whole burnt sacrifice to God. 
Don't you remember that? We're going to go in and fight Canaanites. We don't need to worry. God will do the same thing today. The Valley of Siddim, which was like the Garden of Eden, has become a salt sea. That can happen any time God wants it to. So let's just go and take them. As Caleb says, we don't need to worry about these people. We'll gobble them up. They're like bread to us. But the rest of the people wouldn't listen. So that's mentioned in the text here as an encouragement to the future. Second thing to note is the tar pits. The only other time that we have a reference to the tar pits is in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, verse 3. They said, let's make bricks and burn them, and they used brick for stone and tar for mortar. The allusion here in context, then, is to the Tower of Babel. Remember, Genesis is very careful literary work. All the information here is for a reason. The allusion is from the Tower of Babel. And you see this historical progression in wickedness. They've gone from a tower down to the pits. And it doesn't stay there. It goes even worse. At the Tower of Babel, it says they built a tower that reached up to heaven. When we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in a couple of weeks, we'll find that the stench of their wickedness rose up to heaven. And just as God came down to deal with the Tower of Babel, so he comes down, sends his angels and comes himself to Abram to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. There are all these parallels. And the judgment on Babel, they could have repented from that, but when they didn't repent, it just keeps going worse. And so now instead of building a tower out of tar, they're all hiding in the tar pits, hoping that Chedor Laomer and his chariots won't see them as they hide. If this actually said that the kings fell into the tar pits, the kings would not have survived. You don't fall into tar pits and then just come walking back out. Remember, those dinosaurs fell into tar pits, and they're still there. So they didn't fall into tar pits. That's a mistranslation. They hid in the tar pits. They hid in that area where the mining and everything else was going on. Well, the allusion to the Tower of Babel connects this up. Rebellion against God leads to more and more judgment. The third thing to notice here is hiding in the pits and fleeing to the hills. This means they lost all their dominion, and they lost all their possessions and their food. Everything is gone. You sin, you rebel, you lose it all. And Lot lost it all, because Lot chose to live with these people instead of living with the righteous. He chose to hang around with the Sodomite rebels rather than hang around with Abram and the people of God. So we find that not only has he moved to the east and not only has he pitched his tents towards Sodom, now he's moved into Sodom, and now when judgment comes, he suffers as well. Now, is Lot going to learn from this? No, he doesn't learn from it. That's the sad thing. Twenty years later, Lot's still living in Sodom. And so he loses everything that time. This time he loses everything and Abram gets it back for him. Next time he loses everything and he winds up living in a cave in the ground. Dust thou art to dust thou shalt return. Living death with nothing. His wife dead and his daughter sodomizing him. Great way to end. If it wasn't for the New Testament, we wouldn't believe Lot was saved. New Testament says he was. You'd never believe it from reading the Old Testament. Well, we're not there yet. God is still giving Lot opportunities to repent. A fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now that's real interesting. We're now to refuge in Abram. Abram the Hebrew. Abram's only called this one time here. 
Why? Well, it means he's a descendant of Eber. Eber. That's what Hebrew means. There's all kinds of liberal rubbish about a group of people called the Hapiru who floated around the ancient world and were nomads. And, of course, liberals want to make it out that Abram was a nomad, which, as we've seen, he was anything but. But there's nothing about Hapiru in the Bible. Hebrews are descendants of Eber. And why is that mentioned here? Because Eber is one of the younger descendants of Shem. According to Genesis 10:22 to 24, the sons of Shem were Elam, General Laomer was an Elamite, and Asher and Arpachshad. And in verse 24, Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Now, what we have is this theme of the replacement of the firstborn son, which comes up over and over again, especially in Genesis. Cain is wicked, Abel replaces him. Ishmael is replaced by Isaac, so forth and so on. And here it is again. The younger son, Eber, and his descendant replaces the older son, Elam, and his descendant. Abraham replaces Chedorlaomer because Abraham defeats Chedorlaomer. After Chedorlaomer defeats all the Canaanites, Abram defeats him. The other thing we want to notice here about Abram the Hebrew is that he had all these allies with him. Mamre the Amorite, he was a good Canaanite. He was converted. He was there being led every Sabbath day in worship by Abram the priest, the priest to the nations. And these guys didn't join in the rebellion. And so they weren't judged and they weren't dispossessed. They made the right choice. They chose to be with Abram. In fact, they came out a lot better than Lot did, didn't they? Even though Lot was a blood relative. So... There were righteous Canaanites, and we wonder why Abram wasn't given the land. God says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, and here we see why. Here were righteous ones who were allied with Abram and were saved and are in heaven today. In verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he went out with his trained men born in his house. That means they were adopted by the ritual of having their ears bored into the wall. That's all described in Exodus 21, and I have a lot of material on it in the Law of the Covenant, and we don't need to go into it here. It means they were adopted. They were adopted sons of the house. They weren't literal sons of the loins, but they were sons of the house, adopted by having their ears circumcised into the door of the house. And Abram had 318 of such fighting men in his retinue, plus their wives and children, plus who knows how many domestic servants. It's on the basis of this verse that scholars say Abram was a prince over at least 3,000 people. This is not a wandering nomad. And Abram, with this small company of men plus Mamre and the people that he was allies with, they went out and fought, divided his forces against Chedorlaomer, way up at Dan, at nighttime, like Gideon later on, and he and his servants defeated them and pursued them way up north of Damascus. And brought back all the goods. Two things to notice here. First of all, there's a certain amount of symbolism in the passage in that you have a battle at night, and then in the daytime when the sun is coming up and the new day dawns, you have Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine. And this, of course, happens again and again in the Bible, particularly at Passover. You have God defeats Pharaoh in the middle of the night at Passover, and then at the dawn you have people coming back leaving Egypt and starting out to the promised land. And you have it in the night visions of Zechariah. God pronounces Joshua justified in the middle of the night. In the morning, Zechariah 6, the chariots go out to conquer the world. 
And you have it in Acts 28 when there's a storm at sea and at midnight Paul goes and addresses the Romans and says, you better stop trusting in your ship and you better start trusting in the ark of Christ's church. And they listen and they trust Paul. And Paul, as the day begins to dawn, he gets out bread and wine and serves it to all the Roman converts now on the ship in Acts 27. And the ship is wrecked, but everybody's saved. And that is said to take place on the 14th day. Well, here again, we have in the middle of the night, the enemy is defeated and then the spoils and all the people are brought back into the promised land. And as the sun comes up, Melchizedek comes out, gives them bread and wine. That's a pattern in the Bible, and that pattern is seen here. God defeats the enemies at midnight, and by the time the sun comes up, we're already experiencing dominion and prosperity. Well, the second thing to notice here, besides battle at night, connecting up with Passover, is that Abram had to go from Mamre, which is at Hebron, way down here in the south, all the way up to Dan and beyond And so Abram was dominating the whole land from south to north, and that's about 175 miles. So we see that Abram had this shadow dominion over the whole land. 175 miles is how far he traveled and pursued Shedor Laomer and whipped him and then kicked him all the way up out of the land and then brought Lot back. See, Abram defeated him at Dan, and then he just went ahead and kicked him all the way out and then came back. That's dominion. Now the passage closes in verses 17 to 23 with true dominion. And then the way this is worded, after his return from the smiting of Shadow Laomer, and I've got it just typed out in your notes, this is the climax of the passage, the smiting of Shadow Laomer. Shadow Laomer was powerful enough to dominate the whole land and defeat all these people who would scare Israel later on. Yet in the midst of all this, Abram the Hebrew with 318 men was even more powerful than Shedor Laomer. Israel was supposed to learn from that. Now in 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of God Most High, El Elyon. Things to note here, bread and wine. Bread is for sustenance, wine is for celebration in the Bible. Of course, this connects up to the Lord's Supper. It's after Christ, our greater Abraham, has defeated all of our enemies that Melchizedek, who is also Christ, gives us bread and wine as we'll have today. But bread has to do with renewing your strength, and wine has to do with sitting back, kicking off your shoes, and relaxing and celebrating. That's what these things are in the Bible. And Abraham needs some more strength, and he can also relax now the battle's over. Bread and wine. Melchizedek is said to be the priest of God Most High. And in case you ever wondered what Gentile converts in the ancient world called God, this is what they called him. The way they thought about the world, kings and rulers and princes were all gods with a little g. But over everybody and over all the angels was God Most High. And Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. God Most High had revealed himself to Abram by the covenant name Lord Jehovah or Yahweh. And that name is explained in Exodus 6 as the God who keeps the covenant, but the name was already revealed to Abram. But the name the Gentile believers in the ancient world, and there were many, many Gentile believers in the ancient world, they called him God Most High, and that's who Melchizedek worshipped. And Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Sometimes we wonder, you know, how was it that David knew Jerusalem would have to be the place where the kingdom would be set up? 
And this is how. Melchizedek was the true righteous king, king of righteousness and king of peace. David knew that and knew that this was a prophetic type and that God's throne would have to be set up in the same place. Well, he was priest of God Most High and he blessed Abram, which shows a certain superiority. And, of course, the book of Hebrews talks about this, but it's not really important for us today. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. We're used to creator of heaven and earth, but here he's called possessor. Why? Because God Most High who possesses heaven and earth is going to give it to Abram. The possessor of heaven and earth will give it to Abram, and that's why that phrase is used here. If you possess it, you can give it. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. We could translate that, thanks to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. After you have your victory, after you do your work, you come and give thanks to God and give a tithe. That's what it means to bless God. God blesses us by giving us heaven and earth. We bless God by giving him 10%, no less. It's a requirement. If you want bread and wine, you have to give 10%. Not 8%, not what you feel led to give, but 10%. The book of Hebrews says that. It tells us that Christ is our Melchizedek, and it explicitly says Melchizedek gave bread and wine, and Abraham gave him a tithe. That's the rule. And, of course, Malachi says, if you don't believe that, test me out. Test me out. If you want dominion, if you want prosperity, test me out and tithe, and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven. Well, I've got points to note here. First of all, verse 24, there's nothing wrong with taking rewards. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anarash, Call, and Mamre, let them have their share. There's nothing wrong with taking rewards. That's not the meaning of the passage. There's a special particular reason why Abram refuses it, but in principle there's nothing wrong with taking rewards. You do the work, you deserve a reward. That's the first point. The second point is that Abram refuses to take the land until God gives it. Abram knows that he has a special relationship to the land, and he refused to receive it from Sodom or anybody else. He refuses to take the land until God gives it. And the very next thing that we'll see next time in chapter 15 is that God appears to Abram and says, I will give it to you in 400 years. So Abram's calculation is right. No, he can't receive it now. He'll have to wait for God to give him. The essence of saving faith is patience. That's what the book of Hebrews says and uses Abram as an example. Patience. It's a long-haul operation. Third thing to notice is that Abram's name for God is Lord, but it's identified as the same as God most high possessor of heaven and earth. That's verse 22. Abram said, I have sworn by the Lord, Jehovah, that is, God most high possessor of heaven and earth. So the priestly name is Lord, and the Gentile name is God most high. Fourth, this is interesting, we can't spend time. Sodom benefits from Abram's action, but only indirectly. Abraham's purpose, Abram's purpose, was to protect the fellow believer that he was in covenant with. But as a byproduct, common grace, we may say, comes to the Gentiles, to the Canaanites. And the judgment on Sodom is postponed for the sake of Lot. At this point, Sodom gets all of his stuff back from Abram. Sodom might have learned. Sodom might have repented. He didn't. Abraham was his deliverer, 
and yet Sodom didn't repent. The principle is that good things come to the heathen as a byproduct of redemption. And common grace is crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. Abraham saved Sodom, reestablished him, gave him one more chance. But Sodom didn't repent, so God destroyed him in time. Okay, now, conclusion, true dominion. I don't need to say much about this. First, connection between chapters 12 and 13 and 14 is that worship is set up first and then cultural domination follows. It's always true in the Bible. God called Israel out of Egypt, had them sit there for a year and build a tabernacle, then said, okay, now you're ready to take the promised land. Worship is set up first, then cultural domination follows. If you get the cart before the horse there, it always fails. Secondly, we see limited goals. Abram did not try to do everything at once. He had a limited goal of taking care of Lot, nothing else. He fought Chedorlaomer because he had to, and then he was scared to death. So in chapter 15, verse 1, God appears to him and says, Don't be afraid, I'll be your shield. I'd be scared too if I took a little company of men and defeated a guy that was in charge of the whole world. I'd be afraid he was going to be coming back the next year. Abram was. God says, I'll take care of you. But Abram had limited goals. He didn't try to do everything. Third, we see patience. That's the third key to true dominion. You don't try to do everything. Third, you're patient. Abraham is going to have to be patient for 400 years. And yet, even so, he will go from glory to glory. Fourth, we see that Abraham gives thanks to God for all the good things that come to him. Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine, says Jesus, after cleansing the lepers? Only one came back to give thanks. Only one did what was necessary for dominion. All of us are doing okay. We need to give thanks for the things that we have. God has given us many things, especially when we compare ourselves to the other nations of the world. If we are thankful, then God will bless us, and like Abraham, we'll do better and better as the years go by. That's why the whole worship service is called Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. And fifth, we see tithing. Tithing is one of the most important keys to dominion. Rush Juni called his book Tithing and Dominion because the Bible says if you give your full 10%, God will pour out blessings on you. And that's what Abram does. He gives thanks and he gives his tithe and God appears to him in the next chapter and promises him a son and promises him the land and promises to make him even greater than he was before. Let's stand and pray. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.